This weekend retreat was held November 30th to December 2nd, 2018 at Our Lady of Good Counsel Retreat House, Waverly, Nebraska, on the topic Marriage and Intimacy with Deacon James Keating. These and other recordings are available at our website, goodcounselretreat.com. If you have any fears that you're conscious of that perhaps are destabilizing you in some way in your heart, you want to place those fears on the altar. Give those all to Jesus. We want to become as vulnerable as possible to hearing his voice. So anything that might be an obstacle, a fear, a burden that we're carrying, we want to give it to him tonight. We also want to place any problems that we may be having in our own marriages on the altar too. Uh, that Jesus wants to attend to, any emotional difficulties that we're having between ourselves, places and areas that we need forgiveness from each other. Now, the beautiful thing about a retreat is you have all the um, healing mechanisms of the church present, the sacrament, of reconciliation and the Mass, Eucharistic adoration, spiritual direction. The only other uh, well of healing that's not present would be a a good Catholic counselor. But but you might want to pursue that after the retreat or continue in counseling if you're in that. And all of these things conspire to make us free. Free for what? Free to be available to each other. The satanic movement is always to render us unavailable because of some burden we're carrying or some emotional wound that we will not let go of or give to Jesus. And then therefore the intimacy is threatened. And that makes that makes Satan very happy. We want availability to each other. We want freedom. And as you look over your days, like each day in your, in your marriage, you know, where, where are those days or where are those times or where are those dispositions or where are those attitudes that render one or the other unavailable? Of course, a lot of times this is where the, the fighting begins, the, the tension, the stress around those times or emotions or wounds that render us unavailable to each other. Because in God, right in heaven, there's when we die and we go to heaven, we are taken up into what's called the pure circulation of love. There's absolutely no speed bump, no obstacle. That's the ecstasy of heaven. The ecstasy of heaven is that the circulation of love is unimpeded. And the reason sometimes, you know, let's pick alternate Thursdays, you don't necessarily want to be with each other, is because something is impeding the pure circulation of love. Now, of course, we know what the big one is, and that's sin. And then following sin or tucked inside of sin are our neuroses, or unhealed areas. Or, it could be the opposite, 
that the neuroses or the unhealed areas are the areas that sin uses. And so we know that our frustration is just the anger at our deep desire to have none of these obstructions. And the more we participate in the Eucharist with a really conscious heart and mind, Jesus, I want to be healed. The more and the more deeply we participate in what's happening here at the altar, the more the freedom is given um, leading edges into our whole being. And so the goal before we die is to be absolutely free to receive and to give and to no longer hide or present obstacles for giving and receiving. Now we know that's true from revelation of Jesus and that's what the Trinity is. The Trinity is just simply God, the Father, God, the Son, giving themselves to one another. And the giving is so complete that the Spirit binds them together and is the love between the two of them. That's how real the love is. The love is so real that it's a person. And so we know from Jesus what heaven is. Pure simplicity. What's the simplicity? Giving and receiving. What brings most people to the counselor? Obstacle to giving. Obstacle to receiving. And a lot of times the obstacle to giving or receiving is lodged in our cowardice to be humble enough to receive the truth about ourselves. This is where psychology talks about defense mechanisms. Bob, you know, I've told you a hundred times, I would like you to do X. And when you don't do X, and then Bob says, you know what? You're always bugging me. Rather than, I'm sorry, you're right. You have asked for that in the past. Please forgive me. The latter is freedom, humility, and the love of truth. And the first one is fear. And the fear a lot of times is because we don't want to experience the pain of our own faults. And so we want to mask them, deny them, not confront them. So Jesus wants to, in his, in his way, and his way is usually progressive, developmental, and in the midst of an ever-deepening relationship with himself. Occasionally, he'll do a miracle. But it seems that the normal modus operandi of Jesus, working with couples, is that the healing is progressive, developmental, and always in the context of relationship with him. So, this retreat that you've chosen to come on is part of the conspiracy of God to make you holy. It's a piece of the puzzle. It's not everything, it's just a piece of the puzzle. And as you progress in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, other pieces of the puzzle will be given to you.
And so we want to receive as deeply and as fully as we can and recognize the particular grace that Jesus wants to give us for these 24 hours, 48 hours. The particular grace that he wants to give you, what is that? If Jesus was here in the flesh, what would you ask him like the, the blind man or, or the woman who would not or could not be healed until she actually went up and touched him? What is the particular grace you want Jesus to give to your marriage? Now, it's your marriage, which is, that's a frightening sentence, actually. Right? It's your marriage. You'll make it what you want to make of it. But Jesus is continually encouraging us to make it this deeper and deeper experience of fewer and fewer obstacles between us. Jesus is encouraging that. Because Jesus is encouraging us to taste heaven before we're there. Now it's very clear from the lives of the saints that heaven must begin here on earth or we ain't going. In other words, there's no discontinuity. If we were not in heaven before death finds us, we ain't going to heaven. Heaven must begin here. There's no surprises in heaven, in other words. So when you die and you go to heaven, you're not going to say, how did I get here? You're going to be dwelling in heaven before you die. We know John Paul II, right? Mother Teresa, St. Francis of Assisi, St. Francis de Sales. When you read these people's lives, they were already there. What's there mean? They had already diminished any obstacles to a purer circulation of love. In other words, they were brave enough to suffer their own conversions, to name the truth about themselves, and ask the Holy Spirit to deal with it for the sake of what? For the sake and the welfare of my bride or my groom. I want to be good, holy for you. And Psych 101 and Spirituality 101 will also tell us I also want to be those things for myself, too, because I'll be happier. I remember I had a fight with my wife once, and I said, well, you could do the same thing, whatever X was. I can't even remember. Most of us can't remember our fights, even though we have a lot of them. That's a grace in itself. But I remember I was having a fight with her, and I said, well, you could do the same thing. And she just looked at me, and she said, that would mean I would have to become you. And that was like, whoa, that is so inspired. It was damaging to the ego, but it was so inspired. I mean, it was like at that moment, like the last thing on earth God, uh, Marianne wanted to be was me because I was so screwed up. You could be the same thing, I said to her. No, what? Unhappy? self-centered, idiotic. Sure, I could be, but Jim, I don't want to be you because you're carrying inherent unhappiness in you. So these, these conspiring 
uh, forces of our lives, freedom that Jesus is offering, integrate it with our courage to let him give it to us. Which means we have to be welcoming and hospitable to the truth. Progress in holiness really happens apace when we are hospitable to the truth. So let's be with Jesus just for a moment. This beautiful crucifix here, the real presence of Jesus. And just sit with him in silence just for a second. And every so often we'll just have these pauses of silence so that he can reach us. Now, we'll talk about silence a little bit during the next couple of days, but it's very, very important to um, see silence as positive, not negative. Like a lot of times silence is as in I'm giving you the silent treatment, which is called immature fighting, right? Immaturity. The silent treatment is always a sign of emotional immaturity, and it's negative, right? The silent treatment is the way that babies fight, Okay, because they just go so into themselves, there's so much pain there that they can't utter or speak the truth. And then sometimes we feel like silence is negative, or silence sometimes indicates loneliness. I'm all alone. Okay, but then there's another vision of silence, which is the kind of silence that you might, you know, look at when, or experience when you see a baby's face. It fills you. Like I just became a grandfather. So you want to see the pictures? See, I'm ready to bore the world. The first time grandparent. So when I saw my granddaughter for the first time, right, you look at her face and silence. It's unbelievable. So silence is also fullness. It's not empty. Silence can mean you're so full. There are negative silences, as I mentioned, but the kind of silence on a retreat is we are trying to dislodge the popular American culture and all of its distracting voices so that we can be available to be silent in the fullness of his presence. So I'm going to invite you at those times when we're not in the, um, where is the dining room? He pointed over there, so it's over there. So when we're not there and we're not here where I'm babbling, I'm going to invite you to seek silence in these 48 hours. And, you know, frankly, it could be a relief to both of you. It's like, oh, good, you know, I don't have to talk to him or I don't have to talk to her. Or I don't have to talk to these people all around me. The beautiful thing about a silent retreat is you can be rude and it's obedience. Remember that. Take advantage of that. Especially if you're an introvert. It's a beautiful gift. It's like, oh no, I'm, I'm being silent. Even though I have no intention or desire to talk to you. So use it. Use it because I'm actually kind of laying over the retreat kind of an obedience of silence. 
And besides that personality trait of silence that you might just enjoy not trying to talk so much, use the silence as a time to open and write. And Jesus' voice is always brief, deep, consoling, and challenging. Brief, deep, consoling, challenging. So if someone's giving you a speech in your head, it ain't Jesus. It's probably your mom or your dad. Because he's always brief and deep. And it's consoling and challenging. That's very paradoxical. But when it's consoling and challenging, you can pretty much be sure that's the Holy Spirit speaking. And brief and deep means that it really does few words, but deep means it's about real things. Jesus always spoke about real things. What's that mean? Your sanctification. That's how you can tell it's Jesus talking as well. So you want to be open to the silence and then listen for his voice and let the voice of the current age sort of drain out all over these floors and be filled with him. And then when you go home, the practices that you already have of finding silence just continue. And if you haven't started practices of finding silence, then just start them after these 48 hours. Because it's essential to the rehabilitation of the culture. Remember, as baptized Catholics, we embed ourselves in the popular American culture as evangelists. And one of the things that the culture needs most desperately is the diminishing of the noise of superficiality. And you can carry that to the culture if you suffer the silence first. It's, it's actually aching for this. It doesn't know it. But it's aching for the diminishment of superficial noise. And if we suffer the silence, we could actually be good news for the culture. Because people are afraid of silence, like I said. They think it's empty, or that means alienation or loneliness. And you could be the ones that actually tell people, well, there's another form of silence. The silence that happens in the fullness of presence. The silence that happens in the fullness of presence. So it's kind of like the silence that we'll have in a few minutes of Eucharistic adoration, where people walk in and off the street would say, what are you guys doing? You know, get on Instagram. What are you doing? What's in an empty room? And what's going to save the culture is an empty room. Again, nobody knows this, but you do. Culture will be saved by an empty room. And those who have the courage enough to sit in the empty room waiting for the brief 
and the deep and the consoling and the challenging word, they will be the heralds of the revivification of culture. So take the silence when we're not in that room where the food is. And if I see you in the room with the food all weekend, I'll just say, that guy didn't want to be silent. Plus, then you could turn around and ask me, what are you doing in here so often? But he did mention there are cookies there. And that is my, my weakness. Um, so I will be in there get cookies every so often. The last thing is that the marriage that you have with all its bumps and bruises, the marriage that you have, and when the history of the church is written, your marriage will stand historically as the seed, again, for the revivification of culture. And so no matter what's going on in your marriage now where you think, geez, just ordinary and even less than ordinary and a lot of pain, a lot of problems, the fact that you keep getting up to say yes to each other in Christ, you are already the heralds of the new culture. Because all around you, right, you've seen the dissolution, the dissolving of sanity around the word marriage. You are like islands of reason in a dissolving culture of insanity. And um, every so often in your living room, you should look at each other and say that. And just say to one another, isn't it nice to be an island of sanity, Frank? In a dissolving culture of insanity. And then you have a little glass of wine and you say, this is fun. It's almost like a secret that you have. What's the secret? You're sane. Because this was what God wanted from Genesis. Male and female, he created them. And that we are meant for each other, the will of God. We are meant to generate life, the will of God. And we are meant to be life givers to each other, the will of God. And the will of God is always sane. So not only will your silence help the culture, your fidelity will be transfiguring culture in a way that perhaps you will not know until you're in purgatory or heaven. But this generation of married couples will know it. They will know that they had their finger in the dam when the whole thing was about to be overrun in a tsunami of insanity. And the anchor for this sanity is not your willpower. The anchor for this sanity is communion with this mystery. This is the wellspring of all reason, all love, all truth, all light. And all of that is flooding into you every time you say, Amen to the body of Christ. And it's that slow, progressive, developmental, relational conversion that's happening in such a sober manner that you may not even know you're being transfigured into one 
who is an heir to heaven. But if you're receiving this mystery, you are receiving sanity. Keep doing it. And as the priesthood falls apart, it's ironic, but we need daily mass even more. And those who have eyes to see will know it's daily mass that keeps you in the island of sanity in all of its simplicity. You know, if I was the Pope, I might, I might end some of the positively what people call celebration of the Sunday Mass. Because one of the things that we come in, we come into Mass with a lot of noise in our head, the last thing we need is more sound. Especially if you can't sing. And especially if they do all seven verses, which from my Celtic background is verboten to mix an Irish with a German. But it, you just, why are we singing so much we can't sing? Now, I know there's probably a lot of you who like to sing at Sunday Mass. But my own theory is it will be the weekday Mass that will save us. What's that mean? The, the, the being enveloped in silence and simplicity of what? The spoken word and the body and the blood shared in simplicity. That's just my own theory foisted upon you. But you want to be in those places of simplicity because the complexity of the superficiality, which is a great paradox, but we live in a culture of complex superficiality. And there's something about the beauty of the daily mass in its silence that cleanses that. So whenever you can, and of course I know that some of you can't because of employment, but whenever you can, rest in what the Protestants think is equally absurd and envious, which is what? You Catholics can go to Mass every day. Absurd and envious. Now, of course, that's all due to the priesthood. So as the priesthood kind of falls apart in order to be raised up again, the new kind of priest that's going to lead us into this mystery is himself going to be a mystic. And only mystics need apply. The bureaucracy has collapsed and only mystics will take us into the next age that Jesus is planning. So as you support and you pray for priests, at the same time be encouraging of those men who really know what celibacy is. In other words, they know the sacrifice of the woman in all of her beauty must come only if he has seen and been invited by the beauty of God not just because he's a nerd or he's lonely and he wants to go to seminary. That's not a good reason to go to seminary. God help us. But only the men who have seen the beauty of God so deeply that he surprises himself that he could sacrifice the beauty of woman. That's the man we want. And I'll tell you, they're rare, but that's okay. 
because in their rarity, they can feed thousands. By their fidelity, they can nourish hundreds. So don't worry about numbers. It's now time to worry about quality and only quality. What's at stake? Everything. What? Reality is at stake. And where we encounter reality must be the most sacred of all places, the Mass. Because we bring our sacrament to be renewed each time we go to Mass in our marriage vows. And Jesus is pouring himself out as bridegroom toward us in the midst of his greatest sacrament, the Eucharist. And we want to meet right there at those kneelers like on your wedding day. And you're meeting at the sacred and the prosaic, the sacred and the secular. And he's taking you up into this transfiguration. Okay, so let's look just for a second at that first meditation. It says the content of marriage prep. Content of marriage prep. This is by Cardinal Carlo Caffara, who is probably one of the best moral theologians under the pontificate of John Paul II. Now, this is not, you know, cartoonish or baby stuff here, but, and I know it's late. But we'll just play with this for a little bit. The first thing he's trying to say is that when you're baptized, there's something that remains. What remains? The mark, right? It's in Greek, character. It's like a Greek translation, character. What happened? The mark. In baptism, in confirmation, in priesthood, holy orders, you receive a mark, a character. And that character, Joseph Ratzinger once said, is like a brand mark that calls out to its owner. Who owns you? So we always want to, in your imagination, in your spiritual imagination, it's like you want to find that, that mark, that character, that brand, that Ratzinger also called it a wound. And you want to keep that open so God can reach you through the wound of baptism, through the mark, the character, the brand mark, so he can reach you through it. You never want that to heal. And this wound, this character, is familiar to us because all of you who are couples, right, there's only two ways that you became a couple. And that was you fell in love like a lightning bolt. Or you realized you were in love like when you married the girl next door. Those are the only two ways it happens. It's like my son, when he wanted to marry his, his wife, he said for months, months, maybe even years, oh, this is my friend. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden he came and said one day, Dad, I want to marry Chrissy. Oh, your friend? Like the girl next door, right? They grew into it. You can imagine like, Literally, with that girl next door story, is they're riding tricycles together when they're little, and then they go through junior high, and then they, well, that's just Sarah, that's just Sarah. And then all of a sudden, hey, 
That's Sarah. Something has awakened. Something has moved. Something has shifted. Or the lightning bolt. And that's the wound that Ratzinger talks about, like with baptism and ordination. Boom. It opens. There's something that opens and never closes. The falling in love quickly. I fell in love with my wife the moment I saw her. I really am. I'm one of those guys. And the story is always creepy, but I'll just mention it again. But I was giving a retreat to young adults. And uh, there she was. She was on the retreat. Yeah, I, I like wanted to pick her up on a retreat. So that's creepy. But it happened. And I just fell in love with her. And, uh, and of course, she hated me. The first time she saw me, she hated me. What a weirdo. Whack job, talking about Jesus so much, and she was kind of forced to go on the retreat because they needed someone who could play a guitar. Those were the days when they played guitars on retreats, and um, yeah, she hated me. So she had to grow into it. But I was like, "Boom, you're it." The wound, the beauty, right? The beauty enters, makes a mark, wound affects you. It affects you. Let it. Right? Let your baptism affect you. Your love of Jesus. Let your love of your spouse affect you. Let it wound you over and over again. Like, you know, I'm an old man now, but I still, like, when I travel, like right now, I'd rather be home, right? I don't want to be here. There, I said it. The last place I want to be is with you guys, right? And the only reason you're happy here is because the person you want to be with is with you, right? And I try always to get Marianne to go on retreat with me when I give retreats. I said to her once, uh, why don't you ever come with me? Come on retreat. And she said, Jim, when you go, I am on retreat. So I, I, I actually think she'll never come. Because she's, she's got that beautiful silence now. And I'm not there bugging her. We had a big fight the other night about washing a pan. I wanted to wash the pan. And she said, I want to wash the pan. This is not senility. This is just, you know, marriage. And it was like, I want to wash the pan. It became this whole fight about control. Who's controlling the kitchen? <laughs> it's my pan to wash. And I'm just trying to help you. You're not trying to help me. You're trying to control everything. I am not. When's your next retreat? <laughs> so she's probably home just singing in the kitchen, washing pants. She's probably dirtying them on purpose. So she can have the peace of just washing them without me butting in. But that's, that's where I want to be. <laughs> Why? Because she wounded me. She opened me. Affected me. So does God. So Kafara is saying that when we, are, when we come to God, there is a permanent reality that changes. That's why when your spouse finally dies, you're going to be sad. If. If. You had that wound remain open and available to be affected. To be affected. 
by the presence of the other. This is the great regret of people who, when their spouses die and they didn't do that. Because they, they, the rush of the superficiality of the culture, the economic need, made them go and be isolated rather than dwell deep in each other. And, you know, it's, it's kind of depressing, but it's true. We only have a few years to do that. Not a lot of time. To dwell with each other, to really dwell with each other. Um, again, the envy of the culture. In the end, the envy in the culture. Old people, like when I was young, I always remember my, my brother and I made fun of old people who were married because they just sat. They just were together. And it was dumb and boring and stupid. Because when you're young, you want to move. But those old people were happy. And this is the great uh, fruit of intimacy. They were happy dwelling with each other. Which is a foretaste of heaven. Which is what the Sabbath was supposed to be. Right? The Sabbath is, I can't wait to stop working and running and being superficial. And just dwell with you. For one day. What day? Sunday. We dwell with God, and then we just dwell with our family. And of course, Americans today think that's boring. They think worship is boring, and they think dwelling with each other is boring. And so they're missing the um, simplicity of the ordinary. And that's why they're always running, disinterested, stressed. They're missing beauty and the depth of the ordinary. You want to embrace that. Because everything else is just an artificial escape. But you want to embrace the depth of the ordinary. And at first it feels boring, and it's going to feel boring, especially for younger couples in here, because you're raised as Americans. Which, and everything in America tells us to be alive, you must be distracted. But everything Christ is saying is, to be alive, you must be present. Deeper, deeper. The beauty of Catholicism, and we'll talk about this more later, but the beauty of Catholicism is in its depth more than its breath. Deep. Keep going deep. Where? Into your street address, for one into the life of your home. Neighbors, friends, family, deep mass, sacraments, deep. These are the anchors of reality. And the distractions are the temptations to miss reality. Uh, Americans love to travel because we are so afraid of the ordinary. We always have good reasons to travel. Oh, you know, I want to go there and see Mount Rushmore, you know, or I want to see St. Peter's. And it's true, you know, you come back from Rome and you, you try to tell the first person you meet, I, I went to Rome. And they'll say, you did? And they'll either immediately hijack the conversation. I went too. Want to hear about it? Or they'll say, that's great. I wonder what the special is today at McNamara's restaurant. 
And you thought, I just spent two to 3,000 going to Rome so I could brag. And I got about 15 seconds of interest for that investment. Why did you go to Rome? Why did you go to Mount Rushmore? What were you doing? Were you escaping? Were you just bored? Were you trying to put another picture on Facebook and hoping that people would what? Respond, love you, affirm you? Now the hiddenness of life, rather than the drawing attention to one another, the hiddenness to life. Everything your husband said when he first fell in love with you is true, even though he didn't live it. But that is the truth. Now, I may be weird, but here's what I said to Marianne. Basically, I said, it's every love poem ever written, right? You are my oxygen. And then everything that flows from that. That's true. Now, we don't necessarily live it, but it's true. And the reason, mostly women, because men have their own personality problems, but mostly women feel grief or sad that she's no longer the oxygen is because she knows it's true, too. And the reason you're drinking too much whiskey at night is because you knew it, too. And then what happened was something came in and complicated the simplicity of desire. What was your desire? I just want to be with you. And you believe that. Right? And the reason you believed it is because it's true. And when marriages fall apart and then they come back together again, that's the only way it happens. You have to go back to the, oh, I think John Paul said this. You have to go back to the beginning. And everything good was in the beginning. What was the beginning? Almost heroic self-donation. That I would give myself to you. And only you. And forever you. Now the complication is sin. We'll talk more about that later. But that's the enemy of the beginning. And we have to get back to the beginning in all simplicity and ordinariness. Marriage is not as hard as contemporary culture makes you think it is. It's boring, but it's not hard. And the boredom comes from the standard that we measure against what America thinks is exciting. But even marital boredom has more substance than American excitement. And that's what Jesus is banking on. He's banking on the fact that you will go deep into boredom together and in the boredom of being together to discover the life that you thought was real because of the public relations of America. But it's only just that. It's only advertising. Everybody just wants the one they love. Period. And so keep this wound of falling in love Open. Cardinal Kafara goes on to say, the true essence of marriage, about fourth line down, lies in the marital bond. 
Since the sacramentality of marriage consists principally in the indissoluble bond, indissolubility does not come into being principally or exclusively by the mutual obligation that is undertaken by the consent of the two. Okay. What's the true essence of marriage? Well, that we're always going to be together. The bond of freedom. How does that come about? Through consent. Yes, of course. The two freedoms that meet at the altar. That's why marriage prep is so important. Because marriage prep, in the form that it's going to have to take in the next 20 years, not necessarily the form that we have today, but the form that's going to take in the next 20 years is it's going to be a rigorous process, painful, of becoming free of everything we're addicted to. And then we'll be able to stand at the altar in our two freedoms and give consent. But Kafara says that that consent is not necessarily even the heart of the heart of things. The next sentence is the heart of the heart of things. The bond comes about by the action of God. In the brackets there, the couple is taken up into the unbreakable yes of Christ's spousal love for his bride, the church. The most important thing about marriage for the baptized is the action of God on the day that the two freedoms say yes. Because what happens on the action of God on that day is that your two yeses are taken up into the very origin of yes, which is Jesus. His yes on the cross. To love his bride even if it killed him. And of course it did. And that's where our two yeses go as baptized people who have had the character of baptism wounding us from the beginning. Our yeses go into the yes of Jesus on the cross. That's why this is really the only fitting place for a wedding for the baptized. And of course, we know there are circumstances where you can't have a mass. But the, the most fitting arena for the wedding is here because here is where the wedding feast of Jesus, the bridegroom, is consummated every day at daily mass. His self-donation, the mystery of his self-donation to the bride is given to us each day in his body and his blood. And then your body and blood, your self-donation to each other is going to be taken up into that same mystery, its origin and its strength. There's nothing more sacred than what God is doing in the marriage. So that's why tomorrow we'll talk more about the importance of personal prayer as one of the essences that can never be negotiated away in our marriage. So let's be with Jesus just for a moment, and then we'll get ready for um, some prayer and adoration. But let's be with Jesus in silence just for a moment. Receive what he's giving you. Remember, if you have a pencil or a pen, on the little sheets of paper I gave you, you're listening for what's brief and what's deep and what's consoling and what's challenging. And you want to listen and you want to write that down because you want to pray with that later or you want to explore it a little with me in spiritual direction or your own spiritual director when you get back home. It's very important that you preserve the grace that's being given in the 48 hours. Remember, Jesus has conspired to take you aside for a reason. 
So you want to keep the grace conscious so you can live into it. So just take a few moments to be with him. So Lord, as we begin our time in silence with you and with each other, we ask that you do indeed make us vulnerable to be affected by your love over these two days. A reading from the letter of 1 Corinthians. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. But we have the mind of Christ. And here's what Jesus is inviting us to. To move from the folly to the depths. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts, for they are folly to him. Worship, religion, moral conversion, the formation of conscience service to those in need. These are folly. But we have the mind of Christ. There was a theologian once who said that every time we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, we are receiving the obedience of Jesus. In other words, We're receiving his very capacity to listen to the Father. That's the end of folly. Romans 12, 1 to 2. Do not live in this passing age. The end of folly. Seek the greater gifts. Let's ask the Lord Jesus for that as he dwells with us here sacramentally.